The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Now, it was the story that led to recriminations, resignations and the recall of the Irish government in 2021 when my next guest broke the story of Golfgate. Well, today she brings a new story to the table, a look at the history and inside story of Sinn Féin. Aoife Moore, political correspondent, commentator and author, is in studio with me. Aoife, good morning and welcome. Good morning, thanks for having me. Now, it's very interesting. The introduction to your book, you talk about uh, the genesis of uh, the book and Mm. it's very interesting Sinn Féin didn't want to talk to you. No, they really did not want to talk to me at all. Now, you would have had a, a nodding acquaintance, a friendly acquaintance with, with uh, Mary Lou MacDonald well, yeah, in Doyle Aaron. Yeah, I've worked in Leinster House for five or six years. So I would, you know, and Mary Lou MacDonald would often have been at Bloody Sunday events in, in Derry. So she'd have yeah. met my parents and stuff like that. Yeah, so I would have known most of Sinn Féin pretty yeah. well. Now, you have your own heritage from Bloody Sunday, mm-hmm. isn't that so? Yeah, my uncle Patrick Doherty was the same age as we, I am now, actually, when he was murdered by the British Army on in 1972. Yeah. Yeah. And that has resonated down through your, your whole life, even though uh, when you were younger, you didn't kind of realise it so much. No, like when you're from Derry, you don't ever learn about Bloody Sunday. You're just born knowing about Bloody Sunday, I think. And my family were one of the founding families of the Bloody Sunday Justice Campaign. So it was always just you know, in the ether. Now, uh, you talk about the elephant in the room, that everyone thinks you're a shinner. <laughs> I mean, that's how you put it. I'm not, I'm yeah. not using that term. Yeah, when, it, I came, it, when I came down to Dublin to cover politics, I was, I don't know, maybe I was a bit greener, a bit naive, but I was totally taken aback that people assumed I was a shinner because I was from the north. Uh, not only from the north, but proud to be from the north. And I think that's probably where people yeah. got it from because the only people who are proud to be you might have thought you were pushing an open door then when you're going to write a, a book about Sinn Féin and you're looking for cooperation. What happened? No, I think most people would have thought I was pushing an open door because there was a misled belief that I was a Sinn Um That's absolutely not true. And also Sinn Féin liked to control the narrative. And um, I write in the book that <clears throat> the first person I told that I was commissioned to write the book after my parents and my partner at the time was Mary Lou MacDonald. Um, as the leader of Sinn Féin, I wanted her to know that I was commissioned to write this book. And she said that she was happy for me. Um, I think she said, no better woman. And I said, you know, I'm going to need some cooperation to write this book and I want to give you a fair roll of the dice, but it's not going to be a glowing report or whatever else. And she said, OK, I'll talk to Pearson Michelle. And it's very clear in the book that... Yeah, then she um, ghosted you, basically. <laughs> Been ghosted by many men and now Mary Lou <laughs> MacDonald. Yeah, um, yeah um, it was very clear that Sinn Féin did not want to cooperate and it became, the way I always describe it is they were unhelpful at best and obstructive at worst. Yeah. Now, now they changed their tune after Shane Ross's book came out. Sort of. So Shane Ross kind of rattled the cage a bit and you know there was a lot of negative press around the fact that they would not cooperate with Shane Ross and they wouldn't speak to him. So after Shane Ross's book came out about Mary Lou they made some inroads that they wanted to speak to me and I phoned a TD and asked him to do a book interview and he accidentally said, I don't know if I'm, I'm on the list. The list. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, there's a list of people that, you know, is allowed to talk to you. And I said, you've just told me about the list. <laughs> and yeah, so that was a bit of a calamity. Mm. But, um, and yeah. I kind of decided towards the end that even the TDs then who were allowed to speak to me when I spoke to them, I wasn't getting straight answers. Yeah. I didn't believe they were telling me the truth, so uh, I just gave up. Yeah, and you only spoke to four authorised people yeah. you know, on the list, as yeah. it were. Now, you drove uh, to Belfast to speak to Michelle O'Neill and Conor Murphy. 
And what happened? I drove two hours to Stormont. It was booked. It was sorted. I left Dublin. I drove two hours to Stormont. And when I got there, they told me that Connor and Michelle weren't there. Um, it, this is what I mean. Like, it was incredibly frustrating. Um, and in the end, in that instance, when Connor and Michelle weren't there, I was given 20 minutes with Jerry Kelly. And I asked him a very detailed question. Um, about something I had knew had taken place and he looked a bit taken aback and said I didn't think the questions would be this narrow and I found that quite insulting mm. because this is a forensic look at the inside of Sinn Féin and I was quite insulted that they thought I was there to do a puff job yes now um, getting into the narrative problem, I found that whole thing uh, very interesting that they would try to control the mm. narrative in every way they could and mm. if they couldn't control it they didn't want uh, to talk to you, to give you any help in, in that regard. Uh, you you look at historic events and you talk about in the first chapter proper, shall mm-hmm. we say, the about uh, two bombs in Derry. Mm-hmm. And b- both shocking. I mean, there's one which was a, a, a guy was killed because an IRA bomb uh, went off. A child. A child was killed, yeah. yeah. And uh, then the other one was a proxy bomb. Yeah, so Patsy Gillespie is from the same um, estate that I'm from. He was a civilian who worked at a British army base. He had been kidnapped by the IRA before. Um, and he was a chef. A chef in the British army base, yeah. had four. I believe he had four children. And um, they came into his house, took his family hostage, um, took Patsy out of the house, chained him to his van, put a bomb in the van and drove him to the border. And the bomb went off with Patsy chained to the van. And I think, I believe it was four soldiers that were killed. As, it is said well. that he shouted a warning to his soldiers did. and otherwise many more might more have died. More would have died, only Patsy had opened, when he opened the door that triggered the timer for the bomb. So he op- when they opened the door, he shouted, run away. And they reckon that he saved a number of soldiers' lives yeah. because he warned them. And I mean, you are, uh, you know, it's quite gruesome, the, the, the bits of Patsy that they found. Yeah, so Patsy was um, then identified from a piece of flesh that was stuck to a zip from his cardigan. Um, and that's truly, I think, what gets lost in um, all this talk about the North and the divisiveness and um, the back and forth is just that these victims are people. And that's what I really wanted to get across in the book. And you did. And, and the point of this politically would be that Martin McGuinness, who is the the boss of the IRA, and you don't shirk that. I mean, you talk about Jerry Adams and his role in the IRA and all of that. But that Martin McGuinness had to know about everything that was going on in Derry. There wasn't anything that happened in Derry and the IRA that Martin McGuinness didn't know about. And these two particular things, they influenced his thinking. You suggest that he said, we'll never bomb our way to United Ireland Mm -hmm. using this kind of technique. No, and I think the reason I picked those two um, bombs to start the book was they killed Charles Love by accident and they killed Patsy Gillespie on purpose and both were such pointless, stupid, ridiculous things to do and they lost a lot of support and it was in the early 90s when the IRA campaign was really losing control and that kind of led then to the peace process. Yeah, now the the, the people along the way, I I got the impression that you had more of a a like for Martin McGuinness than you did for Gerry Adams. <laughs> a lot but, of people have said that. Yeah, but yet you talk about Martin McGuinness uh, kneeling at uh, uh, the knee of mm-hmm. Frank Hegarty's mother mm-hmm. and promising her that he was uh, allegedly a tout. 
Yeah. That he would be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he and came they to your him. house. He had, Frank Hegarty had fled to England and they said, Martin allegedly Martin McGuinness came to the house and told the mammy that if he came home he wouldn't be touched. And Frank Hegarty was then assassinated mm-hmm. when he returned to Derry. Now, uh, you know, Martin McGuinness later on, uh, particularly with the Chuckle Brothers and the Ian Paisley <laughs> and so on, became quite liked and admired. But there was this side Well, Martin McGuinness, this is the thing, Martin McGuinness went on a real journey. Um, he admitted not to all of his IRA past, but to a lot of it. And he made great amends to deal with legacy, to talk to victims, to talk to the unionist community and... You know, he became the education minister when I was... The first time I met Martin McGuinness, I was in primary school and he was the minister for education. But Martin McGuinness gave more funding to Protestant schools than Catholic schools as the education minister. He made great inroads to be a politician for everyone. Um, Michelle O'Neill says she's a first minister for everyone and Martin McGuinness really led the way for that. Um, So I think maybe in the book that's why Martin McGuinness comes off um, maybe yeah. a bit better is because he made all those inroads. Now, you you humanise your account and you talk about bombing victims in, in London, for example, in the <coughs> Docklands bombing of 1996. And you talk about, uh, you know, two people who went to work in a news kiosk. And yeah, uh, two men who ran a, a news agents um, in the Docklands and in London. And when the bomb exploded, they were blown through a wall. And this is a thing, like when we hear the Docklands bombing in Ireland and we know that that's an IRA bomb, the really the thing I wanted to get across in the book that these victims are people. Um, Gemma was the wife. She didn't go to work that day. She normally worked in the kiosk. And um, you write, Gemma's life changed forever. For 20 years, she would be her husband's primary carer. She changed Zhao's nappy 10 times a day, but struggled to afford the nappies. Gemma developed a deep depression and killed herself she in 2016, t- age 58. Yeah, she took her own life. So these are the the, the consequences of uh, the violence that, that went on. Mm-hmm. Now, let's turn to Jerry Adams. <laughs> okay. And one of the quotes you have about Jerry Adams is that uh, he could look his best friend in the face and lie straight to him. Mm-hmm. And then the postscript goes, that is if he has any friends. Yeah, I mean, that's not my opinion. That's what yeah, someone that's who worked with him for a very long time. Listen... I know Jerry Adams. Um, I've met him through work a number of times. He is, and I would say the same as Martin McGuinness, he's a very different person now than he was a long time ago. But he is an enigma. Uh, I think he's the king of the rebrand. You know, this is Jerry Adams. He was, uh, you know, uh, infamous. And now he's the gardening book, uh, cookbook writing granda. Um, And listen, it's not for me. Yeah. The judge he is, he is. Um, he's always been very polite to me, but he is probably one of the most consequential politicians of, in Irish history. Yeah. Now, you, you talk about him uh, being interviewed many times about being a member of the IRA, which he consistently demand, uh, denied. Yeah, and it's yeah. very hard when you've denied it for so long to go back and say, well, actually, yeah. the truth is I was in charge of the Belfast uh, IRA. Mm-hmm. But there was one moment when an interviewer was interviewing him and said, were you a member of the IRA? No, 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 no. And then the killer question which I, I wish I had thought of in those situations. Mm. Were you ever tempted? Well, I, th- I believe it was Andrew Marr when he said, were you ever in the IRA? And Jerry Adams said no. And he said, why not? Yeah. Because when you were 16 and you're growing up in West Belfast and the British Army are uh, killing people in the street and harassing you every day, the question would be, why wouldn't, why mm. wouldn't you join the IRA? 
Um, but that's only a question, that's only an answer that Jerry Adams can give us. Now, this is about a journey of a political party that were uh, outlawed. They yep. didn't have a right to to be a political party, really. Uh, they had, of course, the armed wing in in the IRA, the Armalite, and the ballot box. Mm-hmm. Uh, was the way they were going to go. Uh, gradually, the Armalite got uh, left behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, you know, there were members of the provisionals who became the real IRA who yeah. did OMA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, and like, I think, especially in the Republic, I find it very strange, you know, the way Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil, especially politicians, will malign and Fein and they will talk about people like Martin Ferris and they will be incredibly negative. And the thing for me is like, if you support the peace process, you support the peace process. You know, the point of the, Warts peace, and all. the, the, point of the peace process is we were supposed to bring men of the gun into politics and then the men of the gun came into politics and they're maligned for it. And like as much as it, and I know it really bugs people, but there would have been no peace process without Jerry Adams. And that really annoys people, but that is the truth. Yeah, well, without John Hume, of course, who had to do a U-turn himself in terms of his attitude to the violence of the IRA. Yeah, but agreed. I think Jerry Adams had a harder job because it's all sure. well and good for he John. Had to, it's he all had to well persuade his yeah. own back. It's all well and good for, you know, John Hume. But when you are the leader of a movement and you need to tell men who have joined the IRA at 16 have never had any other job and have had parents scared friends, loved ones murdered by the British Army and you need to bring all those people with you. That's a hell of a job. You don't shy away from some of the embarrassing things. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the the Liam Adams thing, which, you know, put Jerry Adams on edge, of course, and Maria Cahill, mm-hmm. particularly. Yeah, and I think that's a really important um, part of it. And like, as someone who comes from Derry um, and, you know, Vigilante Justice um, was the name of the game. I mean, when you have a police service who does not protect, gee, the IRA were the police service for nationalist areas of Belfast and Derry and across Northern Ireland. And Vigilante Justice is all well and good until it's one of your own. Yeah. And that's what happened with Liam Adams and that's what happened with Maria Cahill. And that is why that these movements are not cut out to deal with such issues and how Anya Adams and Maria Cahill were treated, I think speaks volumes about uh, the Republican movement because the name of the game was protecting the movement and not protecting victims of sex abuse. And then the the the, the skeleton in the cupboard that is still there is Jean McConville. Yeah, and you know, there's been a million books written now at this stage. I believe they're turning Say Nothing and a TV show. Um, so Jean McConville is probably the thing that haunts Sinn Féin the most. I I have no doubt when we go to the next election, people like Jean McConville and Paul Quam will be brought up again and again. And I have my own uh, issues about using victims of Northern Ireland conflict when it comes to elections. I don't think that is appropriate or moral, but it is what happens. And listen, it's questions for Jerry Adams to answer, but it is covered in the book and Jean McConville's family um, feel incredibly let down by the Republican movement as well. And you need to remember, Jean McConville's sons were in the IRA. Yeah, they were, that they were, they were of the Republican yeah. family. Uh, you then move on to the modern version of Sinn Féin, that evolution which the leaders had to go through. And you talk about uh, the, the people who've turned it round. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, when mm-hmm. Sinn Féin were in the doldrums in the elections, yeah. then people like Owen O'Brien, the yes. newer generation, uh, said, we got to do something here. And they mm-hmm. did. Yeah, and I think Sinn Féin is um, a very broad church now and what we're seeing, especially in the Republic, is a more left-wing socialist coming forward. So we'll have people like Louise O'Reilly, you know, a trade unionist, 
Owen O'Brien, a housing expert. These are the people who are, you know, packed to lead Sinn Féin. There are plenty of people who would never have voted for J.A. Adams, but they'll vote for Owen O'Brien. Yeah. And I think the housing crisis is not going to be solved. And I know there'll be <laughs> thousands of people shouting at their radio now, but this government is not going to solve the housing crisis. I don't, I feel no qualms about saying that. So Sinn Féin are going to hedge all their bets on people like Louise, Owen O'Brien, Pierce Doherty, because the housing crisis and the health crisis is what they're going to fight the next election mm-hmm. on. Um, finally, what do you believe about uh, the, the IRA? Have they have, have they gone away? I mean, nominally. What did you have. take from the book? You read the book. What do you think? Um, you, you make references to uh, Mary Lou kind of checking with people mm-hmm. from time to time. So there are people, yeah. even though she's the president of Sinn Féin, yeah. she's at the, at the top. Yeah, that's she not... She defers to. Yeah, that's not how Sinn Féin works. So you can be the president, but everything has to be done as a movement. Um, so she will have to defer um, not only to the National Officer Board, which runs Sinn Féin, but... There are still people around, ex-combatants around, who are kept in the loop, and that's how it works. There is not, and that's what used to really bug me um, about being a journalist down here, is this notion of the boys in Belfast. You know, that this IRA Army Council, that's not the case. Um, but there are ex-combatants with a serious amount of sway that has to be kept informed of what the party are doing. So th- that's why Mary Lou, as leader of Sinn Féin, has got to walk a tightrope, you know, in terms yeah. of commemorations of uh, deeds that people in the Republic would regard as very dark indeed. You know, Yeah, where well, like, you know, Sinn Féin's big thing is the hunger strike. You know, the Sinn Féin that we know at the minute, their popularity everywhere they came from is, is from the hunger strike. And I'd be very interested to see how Mary Lou, as Taoiseach, and I do think she will be Taoiseach, as Taoiseach um, walks that tightrope because... People will be very annoyed if the Taoiseach is at a hunger strike commemoration, but that is where Sinn Féin uh, got their base and got their start. So yeah. it'll be a very strange tightrope yeah. for Mary Lou but, to walk. you know, the broad tranche of people who profess that they will vote Sinn Féin in the polls, a lot of them, they know nothing about the hunger strikes. Well, that's truth. why I wrote the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got to sell it in spades to educate a, a largely uneducated under 30 generation. Yeah, and that's, that's the, the thing for me is I do believe um, that Irish, young Irish people are becoming more Republican. I think as as time moves on, we get 25 years from the peace process. I think people see um, Northern Ireland with a different view now. And I wanted to give context to who Sinn Féin are and how they got so popular. I love the dedication for me daddy who loves this type of book and for me mammy who really doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's called The Long Game, it's subtitled Inside Sinn Féin. It's published by uh, Sandy Cove, which is an imprint of Penguin, and its author Aoife Moore. Thank you very much, Thank you very much for Pat. joining us on the programme. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk.